Hey, welcome to ACF Church, and we're so glad that you're with us watching this message online. And our hope is that it would encourage you to be more like Jesus and walk closely with Him as an apprentice of Christ. And our hope is to give away all of these resources for free as much as possible. It takes a lot of time and energy and people to make that happen. And if you'd like to support the mission of God financially for ACF Church, you can go to acfak.org and you can give there. Now enjoy the Word of God proclaimed. Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Well, Wednesday night, I'm so glad to be with you guys today. I'm glad to be in church. If you're new, we're just thrilled that you're here with us. If you've never been to ACF, it's a hot night. I'm telling you what, I get it. Um, If you're feeling led by the Spirit to give to our next step giving initiative, the next phase does include air conditioning. So anyway, I'm just throwing that out there. I felt like it was a good time for a commercial. Um, Man, I don't know how you guys are doing, but uh, I know it's hot in here, but we're going to get into this text. We are in a series called Campfire Stories, and we're just walking through the parables of Jesus. Uh, one of the things that Jesus did a lot is he told really great stories. And a parable is just a, a story with a deep spiritual meaning. And so Jesus told these stories to uh, give people an understanding of his kingdom and how different his kingdom was from the kingdom of this world. And, and so uh, throughout generations, people have read these stories. Uh, if you're not a Christian, you might be still familiar with some of these stories. Um, but what often is lost on people is the actual meaning behind the stories. Why did Jesus tell these stories? What was the ultimate purpose of them? And so I want to set the scene for this particular story uh, in the book of Matthew. 
Uh, you see, every year in Jerusalem, uh, it would actually grow to 10 times its size, uh, both inside the city gates and outside of the city gates, as they celebrated what's called, and, and even today known as the Passover. Uh, this is a really big holiday if you've ever been um, in the East. Uh, this is a really big celebration for them. They would do whatever they could to get into the city, to find their way there, to, to celebrate the freedom of God's people, the way that God set his people free from slavery in Egypt. And so this was a major holiday. Uh, If you couldn't get into the city, what you would do is set up a temporary structure or a house outside of the city walls. You would build it out of whatever you could, just sticks and and stones that you could find around there. And then you'd probably get some palm branches and lay those palm branches on the roof as a covering for you. This is an amazing, incredible holiday, and it's, it's bigger for them than, say, Christmas for us, right? Uh, Christmas for us is an excuse to buy junk that we don't need uh, for people who don't need it, right? Uh, for them, this was truly a celebration of God's faithfulness, and it was an opportunity for nationwide prayer as they once again would come together and plead for God to give them freedom, you see, they, they, although they had been freed once before, they found themselves once again under oppression and oppressive leadership and in bondage as people. And 1,400 years ago, God had promised them a, a Messiah, promised them a Savior, and they were still waiting with anticipation. They're tired of their situation. They're tired of being oppressed. They're tired of feeling looked down upon. They're tired of being overruled by the Romans, by the Babylonians, by the Persians. They are just tired of it. Have you ever felt like that? I'm just tired of it. But there's been these rumors of this man who he, he's, he seems to fit the bill for the prophecy of the Messiah, but not the expectations that they had of this Messiah. He's healing the blind, turning water into wine, raising the dead. And for three years, they've heard these stories. And they're wondering, who is this rabbi? Who is this one that is working these miracles? And then all of a sudden, this Jesus, he shows up in the middle of the party. And he rides into the city on not a horse like a king, but but a donkey, like a peasant, And the crowds begin to notice this Jesus. This is the one. They're whispering to each other. This is the guy that's telling all of the stories. This is the guy that's healing the blind and performing miracles. And they start to think to themselves and talk with each other. Could this be the one? And and somewhere in the corner of the room, someone shouts, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of of the, of the Lord, and, and the crowd erupts, right? It's at a fever pitch. If you've ever been to a football game where it's the last inning, it's the last moment, that person is running toward the goal. You know the intensity of a crowd, and as this man shouts, Hosanna, people shout it with them, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This Jesus, this, this man, was also God in the flesh. To, to come in the name of a Lord, to come in the name of, of, of someone who is on high, is to come with the authority and the power of that one. And so for Jesus to come in the name of the Lord meant that he showed up with the authority and the power of God. This was a big deal. This was scandalous. This man claiming to be God. And as he walks, or not walks, but rides into the city on this donkey, they would, they're giving him a king's entrance. And, and so to prepare the way, they take these palm branches that were used for roofs on their houses and they lay them on the street. And, and then Jesus rides in over these branches and Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They scream 
and they cheer, right? But the, the crowd is growing, and the Romans didn't, didn't want this to happen. They didn't want to lose authority and power over these people. And so you can imagine, someone would scream Hosanna, and then the authorities would run and try to find them in the crowd. Someone else would scream Hosanna, and they'd run and try to find that person, and they're trying to shut the crowd up because they knew that this was way too big of a group for them to control. They knew, knew that their, their, their control was being slipped out of their fingers, and they didn't want to lose authority over the people through this subversive movement of those who would follow Jesus. We know that Jesus was soon to be crucified. After this moment, he goes to the temple, and what he sees in the temple absolutely horrifies him. He sees religious leaders using a place that was meant for worship as a tool to rip off the poor and to hurt the hurting and it enraged Jesus. And, and this is a story that many people who don't mo- know much about the Bible know that Jesus drove these money changers out of the temple. And the crowd is still fired up and people are following Jesus around. And I mean, this is a frenzy if you've ever been in a situation like that. And he sits down and he tells the people a story. And this is where we find ourselves right now. He tells a story about a rich man who owns some land and he sets up a vineyard, right? And he decks out this vineyard and then he moves somewhere else and lets other people take care of his land. This is something that we still see today, right? Someone might buy a piece of land and then they might lease it to someone else as a tenant and they might work the property in a certain percentage of what they get off of the property, whether it be fruit or vegetables or whatever it may be, a certain percentage of their farming would go back to the land owner. This is the situation of this particular landowner, right? What we know is that when harvest time shows up, the owner, what he wants is his payment, right? He wants to get paid because he owns the property. In verse 35, it says this, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Now, let me back up. What we read just a minute ago was that the the story begins with the owner wanting his cut of the land, right? And so he sends a servant to the piece of property, and and what we see is those that were tenants did not respond kindly to the owner sending a servant, right? The servant shows up, he's beaten, he's stoned, right? They're they're mistreated and sent back. Now certainly as the landowner, as he sees this, he's thinking, what's going on, right? Like I expected a payment. He sends another servant, And he gets beaten, right? He gets pretty messed up by the tenants and sent back. And at this moment, the landowner's going, what's going on here, right? Like, why aren't they honoring the understanding that we have? I'm the owner, they're the tenants, and yet they're not paying me for my land. And what you don't want to miss in this this story is the patience of the landowner, right? The landowner keeps sending his servants to go and retrieve what is rightfully his. He keeps giving them opportunities, right? And yet he keeps mistre- they keep mistreating his servants. And so at this point, if you were the landowner, you'd be like, well, what gives? Maybe I need to give up. Maybe I need to, you know, uh, sue them or something, you know, come out with a, a legal case against my tenants to get what's rightfully mine. And this landowner does something completely scandalous and ridiculous. He sends his son, right? Now, now think about this. Like if you were the son of the landowner, right? Let's say you're my son and, and, and this whole thing's been happening and, and, and you're like, hey dad, how's it gone? Well, I've sent 
you know, all of these different servants, and they've all been beaten and pretty messed up by the landowner. And I'm like, well, maybe the son's like, well, what are you going to do next, dad? And I'm like, well, I'm sending you, right? And of course, as a son, you're like, wait, wait a minute. This seems like a bad deal, right? It doesn't seem like a very good thing to do. And so what the landowner says is, surely they'll respect my son. Surely they'll, like, he, he reflects me. And so they're going to respond better to the son. And verse 39 says, and they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? So then Jesus, he tells a story. He's talking to all of these religious leaders in front of him, and, he's, and they're just on pins and needles with this story, right? And so they hear the whole story about these, these uh, servants getting beaten up and, and messed up by the tenants, and then he sends his son, right, which is crazy, and they kill his son. And Jesus says, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, this is a religious leader's response, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Okay. So the religious leaders hear the story and they're like, this is crazy. I can't believe that this landowner would give all of these opportunities to these wicked tenants that are not honoring the landowner and the deal that they have. And then finally, the landowner sends his son. The son is murdered, Right? And the, right, the religious leaders are like, this is crazy. Like, that landowner is nuts. Why would he give them so many opportunities? Why would he continue to send people? Then he sends his son, and they, they kill his son. I mean, he should kill them, right? What they deserve is death, right? Surely they're the ones that deserve the punishment. So let's talk about this for a minute, about the different people in this story. First, we have the tenant, right? What is a tenant? Um, well, if you've ever rented a home, you know what it means to be a tenant, right? A tenant is simply a temporary caretaker, right? A temporary caretaker of something. See, one of the things that we know as believers in Jesus is that we are actually temporary caretakers of everything that we have. That's what we believe, that those who are uh, Christians would say that actually everything on earth is God's. The earth is the Lord's and all that's in it, Right? In fact, I ran across this quote this week um, from Henry Sell. He says this, No man really owns the goods in which he deals or the lands to which he holds the deeds. He may be called away from the temporary ownership at any time. It was asked, when a certain very rich man died, how much did he leave? The reply was, he left it all. He took nothing with him, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Isn't that true? I mean, you've experienced that where you've seen someone maybe that you love pass from this life to the next and you, you see all of their stuff and maybe you've been given the job to go through all of their things and you think, man, there's stories tied to all of this, but what we know clearly is that you can't take any of it with you, right? That's what we know about life. We know that about ourselves. We are temporary residents of this world. We are caretakers of this world, and yet we are still shocked when someone moves from this life into the next, right? When somebody is so successful, they do so much, and yet in a moment, we're shocked that they're taken away from us, right? And in this story, there's, there's the tenants, and there's the owner, and the owner decks this place out. He takes care of these tenants really well. If you've ever been a, a, a landowner, or you own a house, and you've done a good job of taking care of the tenants, it's a si- similar situation, He gives them three specific things. He gives them protection, provision, and a parsonage. 
protection, provision, and a parsonage. We read in the story that there first is a fence around the property, right? This fence gives them protection from enemies that might come and steal from the vineyard. He gives them provision. We know that this property, he says, has a wine press, right? Well, that's a bonus, right? You don't have to go uh, press your grapes somewhere else. You can actually make your own wine right in the middle of the vineyard. Hallelujah, right? Like, they're partying it up. They've got their own wine press, right? So protection, provision, and then a parsonage. We know there's a tower, and they would actually live in this tower and have a view of all the land around this particular property so they could see enemies coming and protect themselves. This was a sweet place to live. They had an incredible opportunity. They had been blessed beyond measure by the landowner, right? And yet, they blew it. They blew it because they forgot in this moment that they themselves were caretakers. They were actually tenants. They were stewards of something that had been handed to them. I had a roommate in college. Anybody ever have a roommate? Anybody here ever live with a roommate? It's interesting, isn't it? Learning how to live with a roommate. Um, Some of you were maybe the property owner or had the majority share of that property. Others of you uh, were brought into the property. I remember a friend of mine invited me to live with him out of high school, and I was very excited about this. And he had, he had very simple rules, three simple rules. First, do your dishes, lock the door when you leave, and don't eat my food. <laughs> and I broke all of them. I was a terrible roommate. I mean, I just, I never respected his property well. I was just excited to not be in my parents' house. And I think I lived like I lived with my parents with my roommate. And guess what? He was not going to put up with it. And we had some intense conversations together because what had happened is I had moved in and made my place, this place my own. I still call it my place. His place, my own. And I'd forgotten that I didn't own it. I was merely a tenant, merely a renter, if he actually got his rent, which sometimes he didn't, right? I was a terrible, terrible roommate. And here's something that I learned uh, in college as I looked at myself and watched others, is that when you sleep too much on someone else's couch, it's easy to forget who owns the house. Isn't that true? Like, when you spend too much time, it's easy to forget that, like, this isn't really mine, Have you ever loaned something to someone, right? And then later on seen it torn up or not well taken care of and you got frustrated because you're like, I let you borrow that, right? It's not yours, but you're treating it like it's your own. You're beating that thing up. Whatever it is, you're not honoring me and realizing that you are a caretaker of this thing. Have you ever had someone take advantage of your generosity, take advantage of your blessing to them, right? But the question that I have as I read this story, and it certainly has a meaning for us, is is how do we do that with God? Are there times that we start to think that we own the place, right? Are there times that we start to think, I've got this on lockdown, I can treat this the way that I want to treat it, right? How is it that God can provide financially for us for years, right? And then maybe we lose a job or go through some difficult time, and then we shake our fist at him and question his provision, I mean, how is it that we ask God to bless us with children, and when he does, they drive us crazy, and maybe we don't even teach them the ways of Jesus, right? I mean, how is it that that God does so much for us, and, and he's so generous to us, and then over time, we start to mistreat his blessings? 
We don't honor the gifts that he's handed to us, and we forget that we are merely tenants in this world, merely stewards and caretakers of the things that he hands to us. So back to the story. So the religious leaders hear the story. It's crazy. This landowner sends three people to try to get through to these hard-headed tenants, right? I mean, it's crazy. And you're thinking, like, what did they think was going to happen? I mean, this is ridiculous. Did they think that if they killed the son, they would get to keep the fruit, right? I mean, that's clearly what they thought. Like, like well, this son is the, is the heir to this property. And if we kill him, we're just going to get the property. Well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, clearly that's insanity. And the listeners to Jesus, they were like, those tenants should be killed, right? They should be murdered for what they've done. And then in a second, they realize they're talking about us. He's talking about us. Guess what? We're the tenants. You ever, you ever heard a story that you realized all of a sudden was about you? People do this after my sermons all the time. Um, they'll get offended and they'll be like, hey, Pastor Brian, like, I know that was for me. And I'm like, I don't know anything about what's going on in your life right now. Like, I didn't hear rumors. I have no idea what's happening in your world, but that's what conviction does sometimes, right? We start to get defensive and we think, oh, they're calling me out. And maybe it's the spirit that's calling you out. Maybe it's God speaking to your heart, right? And see, here's the deal. They were critical of these tenants, right? They had a critical heart towards these people that were not caring well for the property that had been given to them, that had taken advantage of the blessings of the landowner. And here's what I realized as I read this, is that people who are most critical of others are most blind to themselves. We live in a time where it's so easy to get a critical heart, isn't it? I mean, it is so easy to cast stones. Like, when did we start to get really comfortable picking up stones? And it's one thing to see it in the world. But as this story is about the tenants to the landowner, here's the thing. If you're a Christian, there's a different way that we see the world. There's a different way that we see the situation that we find ourselves in. And I get it. You have political opinions. You have medical opinions. It turns out that even if you're not a doctor, you can have medical opinions. I, I don't know. If you read enough you, you know, uh, articles on, on uh, Facebook, then now all of a sudden you're uh, a professional. Anyway, that's, that's just the world that we live in, is that lots of opinions lead to a lot of critical thoughts towards one another. And I just, I just want to call us out as a church. We're to rise above the fray. We're to rise above the rhetoric. And, and we can have opinions and at the right time, there may be a way to, to, to honor each other in sharing those opinions. But we have to be very careful when we begin to have a critical heart towards other, others, especially those who, who would bring us the things that God wants to say to us. You've heard the phrase before, don't shoot the messenger, right? I have shot some messengers in my day. I have surely been upset with and, and, and been critical of those who were speaking God's truth to me because I was not ready to hear the truth. You see, if you read through the Old Testament, if you open up the Bible, you will read story after story of prophet after prophet that God sends to speak to his people. Um, can I just tell you that nobody wanted to be a prophet when they grew up? Like, if you read the Bible, that's funny, because you realize this is not like, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a police officer, you know, I want to be a, a prophet. No, because that meant you were probably going to get killed, because that's what God's people tended to do to 
the prophets. God would speak through the prophets, and then the people would resist the truth, and ultimately, they would mistreat the prophet to the point of oftentimes death. And I have a list for you. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah was beaten on multiple occasions and then thrown into a pit and stoned. Not a good day to be a prophet. Elijah and Amos were were banished and forced to hide in caves. That's not great living conditions. Um, Ezekiel was murdered after preaching a sermon. So let's hope tonight goes better than for Ezekiel. Habakkuk and Zechariah Zechariah were both stoned by the Jews living in Jerusalem. So uh, Zechariah got chased into the temple and stoned near the altar. Isaiah was cut in half, okay? So bad day to be a prophet. Now, when we read these stories, we go, how could they be so blind? I mean, we're like, God is speaking to you. His law is clear, right? I mean, it's written everywhere you go. You know what God expects of you. We read it and we're like, idiots, right? And then we ourselves do the very same thing, don't we? It's easy to think we're more advanced. We've progressed beyond previous generations, and yet here's what you need to know, is that you and I are made of the same stuff as those who killed the prophets. And even deeper than that, uh, we're critical of a lot of people. I mean, there's sin, right? Like, okay, yeah, when I was a kid, I stole a candy bar, or, you know, yeah, you know, I was a little bit, you know, sketchy on my taxes last year and fudged some of the numbers, or, you know, there's like, there's, yeah, you know, a little bit, little white lie about going out late last night. I told my mom I was here. I was actually there. You know, we got, there's sin, and then there's like, there's sin, right? There's the stuff that you and I would say, no, um, that's a person that I would never associate with. Like, if somebody did that, they would be dead to me. Like, these are egregious sins. According, to, we, we rank, right, the level of people's depravity based on how, uh, how their sin looks or how bad it seems to us. And yet what we read in the scriptures is that we ourselves are made of the very same thing as those who have done the worst of the worst in the world around us. We're made of the same stuff as those who have cheated who have committed genocide, who have owned slaves, who have exploited children. We are made of the very same things. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. In other words, when we're in the flesh, the way we're made is is with hostility towards God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So apart from Jesus, we are made of this stuff that cannot follow God. Apart from God's grace, we ourselves are all capable of anything. And if there's one thing I've learned in the years that I've spent as a pastor, it's that everyone in this room is capable of anything. You ever heard a story of a friend and been like, oh my gosh, and just been shocked? And, and, and your mind is blown. You're like, it doesn't even make sense. I, I, No, I know them. There's no way they could do that. There's no possible way. And then you find out, no, it's it's true. No, no, that's that actually that actually happened. And you think to yourself, how could it be? That's not possible. But the truth is, we all, and this is really important, that we don't fall from our place of arrogance thinking that no, 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 I'm above certain things. No, we all are made of the same things as those in this story, the, the, the wicked tenants who would stone the son. 
who would murder the one who is coming to give them one last chance. Are you seeing the connection? Are you seeing the story unfolding before these people? This is not about a man who owns a piece of property in some faraway land. This is Jesus telling a story of what would come merely days later. That those who heard this story would actually kill the son who had come to rescue them. And then it clicks in their minds, and guess what? They're offended. Because that's often the first response to conviction is offense, right? It's so interesting, right? You can walk away from a message like this, and you might walk, walk away going, man, uh, that was really good for my soul. You know, some people will say, that's a hard truth, Pastor Brian, right? That's a, that's a hard truth. And other people walk away and they go, I just, I was shamed. That's the reason I, I don't like church or I don't like reading the Bible is I was shamed. And let me just tell you, the purpose of any text in the scriptures or any sermon is never shame. Shame is a tool of the enemy. Shame is a distraction from the truth that Jesus wants to give you. So don't give way to shame, but open your heart to the truth here. Two realities that we see. First, your heart possesses, and my heart possesses, a deep hostility to the authority of God in your life. Like, apart from Jesus, there is a hostility toward the total authority of God in our lives. Now, you might give up easy things, right? You might give up lesser gods and things that don't matter as much, but we all, as we talked last week, have that one thing. They were like, oh, don't you touch this God. Don't you mess with that part of my life. The second beautiful truth, though, is repentance is when we admit it and ask God to change it. And so although we have it within ourselves to do anything in this world, anything that, would, that we would maybe even judge others for, the beauty of this is we have a chance to turn around. That was the whole purpose of sending the servants and sending the son was, was, was the owner going, man, I just want for you to get it. I want you to see the truth. I want to give you an opportunity to change your mind. That's the word repentance is to change your mind. That's what it means. And so you have it in you just as much through the power of the Spirit to change your mind about anything here tonight. Maybe you've seen things a little wrong. Maybe you haven't quite understood what God has said, that he's actually wanted the best for you in the things that he calls you to, in his laws, in his decrees, that those things are actually the best for you and for the world. And you have it in you through the Spirit to actually change your mind here tonight. So let's get the who's who in the story. First, the tenants. Who are the tenants? The tenants are the religious leaders, right? So the owner in the story is representing God, right? So Jesus is telling the story. The tenants in the story are you. That's why they're offended, because it's about you. Um, the owner is God, and the vineyard is God's people. You see, they were meant to, to work the vineyard, they're meant to, to produce fruit in the vineyard, right? And so as we read this story, there's three things that I want to talk about that the tenants rejected that we can actually learn from here uh, today. The first is the tenant, tenants rejected the owner's instructions. They were told to produce fruit on the land, and that ultimately being fruitful on the land would, would be given back to the landowner, right? So, so as I read that, well, what can we do to learn from the tenants? The first is this exchange the religious life for a fruitful life. You see, they were paying lip service to the owner, acting like they were being faithful to what they'd been asked to do. But when the time came 
to give the owner what he'd asked for. They did not want to give it to him. You guys, this is so uh, pervasive in the church is that we would fall into religious lifestyles instead of fruitful lifestyles. Now, to be a fruitful person is that you actually see the kingdom of God expanding in your life and in the lives of others. That's what it means to be fruitful, is that you see more of God and less of you in your life, and that the people that encounter you start to experience more of God and less of themselves. That the reign and rule of God is seen around you in different ways, in the ways that you care for others, in the ways that uh, you serve others, as you, as you disciple others, right? Because everyone that, that's a disciple makes disciples. That's what the Bible says. It's less of something that, that you're, you're, you're told to do uh, aside from discipleships, and, and it's really something that you're going to do if you are a disciple, is that you will actually make other disciples, which is just apprentices of Jesus, right? So exchange the relig- relig- uh, religious life for a fruitful life, right? One of the things that we often do, and this is one of the temptations, is that we get religious so that we don't have to give ourselves to God. Religion is actually a tool that, that, that people use sometimes to keep God away from their life. They think, if, if I can do enough of the stuff and look religious enough, then I don't actually have to let God into my world and give him the things that I don't want to give him. And so you convince yourself, as we spoke week one, um, that, that we are good soil. You convince yourself that you're good soil, but you're actually really rocky soil, because you're not receiving the fruit or receiving the seed of the kingdom and producing true fruit. Another way to say it would be that religion is our way of buying God off. It's our way of saying, look, look at the good stuff I did for you, right? Look at the way that I took care of this person or give a little money to the church or you know, did something good for the needy. Look at this stuff, and it's not actually producing the fruit because we're not truly loving others. We're just trying to buy God off and get him off of our back. And one of the key things in this in having a fruitful life is that we will not have a fruitful life until we realize that we are stewards and not owners of everything that we have in this life. Down to the very seconds of the day. You're a steward of every moment of your day. That's not yours, it's God's to be used for his kingdom, right? And so at some point we realize, man, we're playing games with God. We're not truly followers of Jesus. Here's the second thing the tenants did. The tenants rejected the owner's warnings, right? They had all these opportunities. So what can we do first, or second, is this, we can see God's grace as a wake-up call, not a snooze button. When you uh, first heard about the love of Jesus, I mean, wasn't it beautiful? I mean, if you, maybe you're not a Christian here, and you're like, man, I I don't get it yet, but if you're a believer in Jesus... There was a moment that it just clicked for you and you thought, oh my goodness, I can, I can feel free from my past. Like I can actually let that go. I can be healed from what's been, been broken in my life. Like Jesus himself, you mean that he took this sin upon himself and I can be free from it forevermore? Like that is, that's some kind of love, right? That is some kind of grace. And there was a, a certain like peace that we felt in that. Now, the problem is when we take the peace of Jesus that comes through his grace and it doesn't result in a changed life as a wake-up call to see the whole world different, it's an abuse of the good news. It's an abuse of what God has tried to give us. We haven't truly understood God's grace if it doesn't change our lives. You understand that? 
Like if it doesn't result in a changed life, if we're not forever changed in the way that we live, and and I get it, we're gonna blow it sometimes, it's a journey that we're on, we're gonna mess this up sometimes, but if our pursuits and our loves aren't centered around Jesus after we receive his grace, I just wanna promise you, you have not fully received it. You haven't completely comprehended how good it is and how transformational it is that God loves you and that he wants to spend eternity with you. I mean, in other words, like we said last week, you can't enter the kingdom without a king. You can't come into the kingdom of God and be like, yeah, I'm not so concerned about having a king. And so see God's grace as a wake-up call, not a snooze button. This this story just popped in my head. A few years ago, a friend of mine, he borrowed our car um, to go down to the Kenai River to do some dip netting. And uh, they had flown into town and um, they were actually, they weren't dip netting. They were actually fishing with a reel because you can't dip net because you're from out of town. So anyway, they're fishing with a reel. They were hanging out with us, dip netting. Anyway, they borrowed this, this car. And so it was so funny. Like they dip netted with us all day and they were like, okay, we're going to go into Kenai and we're going to get a place to stay. And, and, and they're, they're driving and they are tired. I mean, it's like midnight and they've been like flying and driving and fishing and doing all kinds of things with us. And there's three of them in the car and the guy that's driving, I mean, he's like, he tells me the story. He's like, your car is so comfortable. Like, I love it. And so we're coming into Kenai. We're all tired. We want to sleep well. So he cranks the heat up. And he says he cranks the heat up and, 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 and then he blacks out. He doesn't remember anything until however long later, he wakes up to someone pounding on the window of the car and he looks around and he's at a stoplight and it's green and the traffic's going all around him and this dude's pounding on the window and he rolls down the window And he's like, hey, bro. And my friend's like, what's going on? And he's like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, you've been sitting here through two stoplights. I thought you died, man. He's like, oh, my God. So he fell asleep with his foot on the brake, praise the Lord, right? He didn't drive through the stoplight. But he got so comfortable in the car, he just just passed out, right? He just basked in those, like, heated seats and that, that, you know, reclining seat. It was so comfortable that he just used it as a chance to almost kill himself, right? And it's interesting, like, sometimes we hear about God's grace, and then we think, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit in this cozy moment here, right? I'm just gonna kind of soak it up, and, and instead of seeing it as a wake-up call, we use it as a snooze button. I'm just gonna go back to sleep. I'm gonna act like Nothing has really changed. And I just want you to know, if nothing changes, you don't get the grace of Jesus. It will change your life. Matthew 21, 42. I love this. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, right? So when he talks about this, the stone that the builders rejected, he's talking about Jesus, And how the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, they expected a Messiah, but they didn't see this coming, right? They didn't see Jesus coming the way that he showed up to the world. Have you ever been surprised by somebody? Surprised by things that you didn't realize about people? Maybe it's a high school kid that got cut from the football team and then goes on to play pro football. You're like, didn't see that coming, right? Maybe it's somebody that nobody thinks can speak in public and then goes on to be a motivational speaker. You're like, didn't see that coming. Maybe it's the girl that you're like, she's never getting married. And then she marries the guy that you always wanted to marry, right? Like, like she marries the perfect guy. You're like, oh, didn't see that coming, right? I mean, this happens all the time. Jesus was certainly 
this type of person. I'd say, this, say it this way, Jesus is the God that people never saw coming. They, were, they, they, they missed him, and he was right before their eyes. And the tenants had so many opportunities, and yet they never took those opportunities seriously, right? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. If you've ever done any building in a house, what you know is the foundation's the most important part. I mean, if you don't have a true foundation, that the house will go up all crooked, and I mean, ultimately, it, it may even fall over. And so, uh, when they talked about cornerstones, people got that, that there would be a, a stone that would set the direction of all of the other stones, and it would make sure the house was true and it was solid. And here's what happens to a lot of people, is that they get saved at some point in life, they believe in Jesus, and they want to add him as a, like, a, like a stone to the house, to an already made house. And they're like, well, I'm going to put a little Jesus in, in, the, in the house. I'm going to put the stone somewhere on my already created house. But what we read in this text is that Jesus doesn't want to be a stone in the house. He wants to be the cornerstone of the house. And what that means is for some of you, there's going to be a tearing down and a rebuilding of your life if you want to make Jesus the Savior. Like he needs to be the cornerstone, the one that sets the course for everything that you do. The stone the builders rejected has become the corner stone. In this text, it really is challenging. It says essentially that like, people are going to trip over Jesus. They're going to they're see him, and they're, they're actually going to end up judged because of this, because they're not responding to Jesus for who he truly was. They've given lip service to the Savior. What we see in this text, the third thing I think that we learn is this is that we can realize that Jesus is your last and only chance at salvation. So they send the son, or the, the owner sends the son. The son is, is ultimately murdered by the tenants, and we know that this relates to Jesus. Jesus is the son sent by the father. And what we need to own today is, is the people of this world is that the blood of the cross is actually on our hands. Like it wasn't someone else that killed Jesus, but we are the reason Jesus died. And we missed it. And so now's our opportunity. Tonight's our opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to it. Jesus is your last and only chance at salvation. And here's what we need to realize is that this may be your last and only chance to hear it. And that may seem a little doom and gloom, but that's the realization in this story is that this was their last opportunity. This was their last chance to wake up and to hear the truth and to respond to the landowner and they rejected it. Not, not just rejected it, but they actually crucified, killed the son, right? And so for us, we need to realize Jesus is the last and only chance. He is the one that can save us. And we have an opportunity tonight to receive that and to step into that. And we should never assume another opportunity. Like if you're putting off Jesus or if you're putting off leaning into his kingdom or leaning into the church... The text, this story is pretty clear. Like, you don't necessarily get another chance. It doesn't say, well, he sent the son, then he sent a few more servants, and there was more opportunities. So here's what should terrify us, right? Like, God is so loving that he uses our circumstances to get our attention sometimes. And he sifts our lives to get us to see who he is. We shouldn't be as terrified of that as we should be about God saying, if you don't want to listen, then I will let you. If you want to walk away and act like there is no God and live like there's not really a king and a kingdom that exists to live for, if you want that, I'm going to let you walk away. That should be the most terrifying thing, is that we hear the good news, walk away from it, and that was our last chance. 
I'll close with this. Um, I share a lot about my grandfather. He was one of the most influential men in my life. And um, as he was getting older, he, uh, he actually fell down. He raised oxen and cattle, and he was actually in a barn, and this, this ox stepped on his foot, and he, he fell over and hit his head on the concrete. And I got this phone call that his brain was bleeding and that um, they didn't know how long he was going to live. And they thought it could be days, and it actually turned into years. Um, and, and he was never the same after this moment. And um, that, I really struggled with that because uh, I'd always seen him healthy and strong, and now he was, he was not healthy and strong, and he wasn't the same man. And um, I used to call him almost every Sunday. We'd just chat for a few minutes, and I, I just I stopped calling. Because I was just like, man, I, I don't like our conversations now. It makes me uncomfortable. He's not the man he used to be, right? And I just, I found myself, myself resisting making the phone call. And then finally, I mean, it was, it, was like, it was like a year later. One Sunday, I was like, I got to call my grandfather. So I picked up the phone and called him up. And again, he wasn't the same. He was different. Um, it was uncomfortable. But as I'm talking to this man, I'm like, he's still my grandpa. And I was so glad that we had this conversation and I hung up the phone and uh, little did I know that was the last time I would speak to him. Little did I know that was the last opportunity I had to talk to this man. And God took him from this life into the next. What I want to say to you tonight is, is sometimes we live with a lot of assumptions, right? Did anybody see COVID coming? Did you see it? I didn't see it coming. Maybe you did. I mean, good on you. I didn't see this coming. But I just want you to know there's a lot about life that we don't see coming. And what if tonight you just received the reality that Jesus is your last and only opportunity for salvation? And if you've paid lip service to God or played the religious game for too many years, you have a chance tonight to change your mind and step from the religious life, like the leaders that Jesus was talking to, into the saved life to fully receive his grace and live in wholeness and in peace. If that's you, I just want you to bow your heads for a moment. I want to give you a chance to receive that. God, we, uh, we want to live in this peace. We don't want to be like these terrible tenants who um, were given so many opportunities to, to hear the truth. God, we want to respond to your truth here tonight. God, we know you love us and that your love and grace is all over this story and it's all over our story. God, you've given us way too many chances. And as we read this story, um, your grace doesn't make sense. I mean, we're like the religious leaders, God. We don't know why the owner would give them so many opportunities. And as I look at my life and as I look at the world, I, I could say the same is true. That your grace doesn't make sense. We hate the idea of eternity apart from you, God. We hate the idea of hell. And you got when we see ourselves for who we truly are, hell makes sense. Separation from our creator makes sense. But what doesn't make sense is that you as a loving father would send your son to die in our place knowing that there may be a chance that we would respond to your grace. And so God, tonight we want to open our hearts to you. If, if this is you tonight, just receive the good news and say, Jesus, I want, to, I want to give up a life of religion and take up a life of true faith. God, I don't know how to do it and I'll probably screw it up, but I trust that you'll give me the grace I need to step from this day into the next. God, I don't want to walk away from what could be my last chance. So tonight I place myself in your hands. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us and for our church. God, thank you that you, uh, 
you've got us in the midst of all of the insanity that we are living in right now, God, and you see beyond all of it. Father, we pray that we'd lean into this opportunity to be challenged and changed, that you'd mold and make your church right now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you made that commitment to follow Jesus, or if you just would love to be prayed for, uh, just pull out your phone real quick. There's a QR code in the seat in front of you. You can just open up your camera on the phone, aim it at that little QR code on the seat in front of you or here, and uh, there's a way that you can just put in uh, how we can be praying for you. Our team prays for people every single week, and if you're dealing with something, I would love to know about it, that we could be praying for you. Also, if you made a commitment to follow Jesus, we would love to get you some information and uh, just celebrate that with you as well. So would you stand up? Let's worship together as we close tonight. Thanks for watching this message from ACF Church. Uh, We hope it's encouraged you and challenged you to be more like Jesus and to walk with Him in a closer and more profound way. If you'd like to give to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so at the link on the screen or at acfak.org. We love you and we'll see you next week.